0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Today I want to begin a new series. It will be a short series. As far as I know, many times I say that, and then they turn into longer series. But I don't expect that with this. But at this point, it's planned on being a Christmas study from the Word of God. And so I'd like to get right into that today. We're calling this Babylon to Bethlehem, a 1,000 mile homage. And I want you to understand what we mean by this in this series. So welcome, let's get right in. In this brief Christmas study, we wanna dive deeply into the special homage journey Recorded for us by Matthew, the gospel writer, who was a direct disciple of Jesus as he learned of these mysterious visitors very early in Jesus' life. Who were they? Where did they come from? Why did they come? And when did they come? How did they know to come then at precisely the right time? And where did they go to to find Jesus. Join us through this short study as we dig into Matthew's account of the wise men associated with the birth of Jesus and his young life in lesson one here as we look at the mysterious visitors. To begin, let's read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So Matthew is the one that gives us this account of these mysterious visitors and where they came from, why they came, etc., cetera, we're going to explore. And so let's begin. First of all, let's establish that Matthew is the author of this gospel. And we want to also understand the approximate time and way that his gospel record came to be. In a new series that I'm doing, that will be a longer series, And it is a study of the book of Matthew where we are looking at Yeshua, the son of David, exploring Matthew's gospel. I will be getting into more of this in the beginning of that particular series. But right now, in brief summary form, let me first give you a few points to consider as to Matthew's authorship. We were first introduced to Matthew as one of the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus early in his ministry. He also bore the name of Levi. That leads me to think that he may have been one of those of the tribe of Levi, although that was unknown. However, many from the tribe of Levi or the priestly line called the Kohanim would have that type of a name associated with them. We don't know if he was from the tribe of Levi or not, but he was also called Levi. He was a tax collector or a publican, a collector of tax revenues. He was hated by the Jews, most of them, because he was a betrayer to his people. That's how they considered him because he was a tax collector. He was committing treachery with the Jewish people in their minds. He had turned on his own people in that type of job or occupation he would have been very likely cheating the people as well, based upon the warning of John the Baptist to the tax collectors who were going to repent. That warning is found in Luke chapter 3, verse 12 through 13. And John tells them, don't collect more than what is due. In other words, stop cheating the people and charging more than what is right. Also, we find another tax collector that became a follower of Jesus, who believed in Jesus later, and his name was Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, based upon Zacchaeus' repentance, who also was a tax collector, a chief among them, we're told, he repented and pledged to recompense those he had cheated. So cheating was very likely associated with Matthew's former occupation before he chose to follow Jesus. And these types of points likely explain why the tax collectors were hated so much. Now, he became one of Jesus' earliest disciples, and he stayed faithful through the end. All did abandon him at the cross, including Matthew. The only one we know that was at the cross was John. But Matthew is among the number on resurrection day, later that same day when Jesus rose from the dead and beyond. He is also among the number at the Ascension and among the 120 in the upper room and among the apostles in Acts and beyond. Although he's not named specifically as the author, Matthew is most probably the author. We have some general areas of proof for this, that are internal within the gospel itself, and that are external. We know that Matthew would have been well-versed in Judaism, especially the Old Testament prophets. And among all the gospels, we find that to be true in the fact that Matthew is writing primarily for a Jewish audience to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied of old to their people He is the Jewish Messiah, the son of David, heir to David's throne, and the son of Abraham, the Jewish Messiah. There are some external things that also give us indication that Matthew is the author. There was consensus among the earliest of the church fathers. They unanimously agreed that Matthew is the author, even including a quote from Papias, who was as early as 60 A.D., most scholars believe that Matthew wrote his gospel in the 50s AD and definitely before Luke wrote Acts in the early to mid-60s and Luke's gospel as well. Many believe that this gospel was written from Antioch, Syria. We don't know for sure, but tradition and historical records tend to indicate that. How could Matthew know of the Magi visit? Obviously Matthew didn't know anything about Jesus when he was born, when he was in his early life. Matthew had no knowledge of this otherwise. But consider this, he was a tax collector, in touch and in good relation with many other religious and political leaders. So he would be somewhat in the know about things. We do not know his age, so he may have been a child that could have encountered these visitors. And most likely this would have been a, an unforgettable experience for anyone and everyone who was alive at the time. It would be something perhaps like the Challenger exploding in 1982, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the 9-11 event and other things that would be memorable for a very long time. We'll see why that's probably true as we get into this message. But I believe the biggest contribution to Matthew having knowledge of this came from one who was the closest to Jesus, Mary, his mother. She would have known this and she would never forget it. As a matter of fact, in Luke's gospel, it tells us that the events concerning Jesus' early life, his birth, etc., Mary hid those things in her heart. In other words, she never forgot them. They were etched inside of her heart and her mind. She outlived the cross. She became an integral part of the early church, even mentioned among those listed in Acts chapter one as being in those that were in the upper room. She would have stayed with John all through the rest of her life until she died because John had been given the mandate on the cross to take care of her as his own mother. So she would be integral to the early church and be where John was ministering, she would have been also. She was the one person that knew the entire story, every minute detail of Jesus' birth and life prior to his public ministry appearance and his baptism at 30 years old. She was the one that could tell them every detail. Most every mother that I know and have talked to can tell you all the details about their children's birth. They know, they know how much they weighed. They know the timing of their birth. They know the whole story behind their birth. Mary would have known those. And so she would have been the one that would have given that information to Luke and to Matthew. And in the introduction to Luke's gospel, Luke lets us know that he received these gospel accounts, the truth of the record that he is writing about to this Theophilus through people talking to him and telling him, the eyewitnesses. He didn't go and just get gossip. He went to the very people and they were interviewed by him, so to speak. It's very likely that both Luke and Matthew interviewed Mary and Mary would have shared the first-hand knowledge with them. There was also verifiable information on these visitors from the history of the time, and from firsthand witnesses and observers. It's no stretch of the imagination to know that Matthew had ample sources for the veracity of these visitors. It may have only been from Mary, however, that he tied it to Jesus to give him the complete story to understand them coming, why they came, where they went, etc. So now with that bit of backstory, Let's examine the visitors themselves, who Matthew calls the magi or wise men. Who were they? Well, in the Greek, the Greek word is magian, And there's differences of opinion as to what this word actually means. But it was known to be in that time an official of a government, a foreign Gentile government. Some say it was an oriental scientist, astrologer, or sorcerer. It was a Babylonian or Persian official. That is for sure. It was a name given by the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians to wise leaders, to those who were teachers, physicians, seers, interpreters of dreams, those who would teach wisdom in mind, word, and action. Some say that they may have been priests of Zoroastrian religion or whatever, this is more debated and unsure as others that are from the past are as well. So we're not sure about that. But they were some type of governmental officials, some that were trained and skilled expert in religion, perhaps expert in wisdom, expert in accounting and controlling administration, etc. In the Parthian Empire, they even gained great political power as judges and tax collectors. Even into the Roman Empire, they held great prominence, serving as advisors to royalty even. They were usually at the royal court, accompanying royalty. They could interpret dreams. They were very likely high officials of the Babylonians and of the Medes and the Persians. Even up to the first century in Roman time, they were still high officials of foreign governments well-respected, well-revered administrators in royal court and bureaucracy, likely from the Parthian Empire, which was from that Babylonian and Persian Empire period, known as royal advisors and administrators, skilled in science, culture, sacred writings, and understandings. Where did they come from? The Bible says they came from the East. What does that mean? Well, you have to understand, first of all, that direction in Scripture from God's perspective is always from Jerusalem and Israel. So it is east of Jerusalem, east of Israel. Let's go all the way back to the first place where we read this in Scripture. Genesis chapter 2, verse 14 says this. The name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. That's talking about the Tigris. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So the east defined in first in Genesis chapter 2 verse 14 is in land where there is the Tigris and the Euphrates. That is the land of the east, which is in the Babylon and Persia area, Iraq, Iran in that area. And these were some of the river borders of the Garden of Eden that God had made. We're told that it's east, east of Assyria in that area. It's the Babylonian Persian area. In Genesis 10, 30, we find out that it's Arabia lands and mountains that are mentioned to the east. It's east of Jerusalem, east of Israel. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 2 says this, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then if we jump down to verse seven through nine, it says this, the Lord is speaking here, and he says, come, let us go down, and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, And they ceased building the city. This was in the building of of Babylon. This was the very first mention of Babylon. It was where Babylon's origins started. And it was in the plain of Shinar in the east, in the Iraq, Iran, Persian area. In Genesis 25, 6, we see Abraham sending them away to the land of the east. In Genesis 29, verse 1, we find out the land of the people of the east is in the Mesopotamia area, Syria, Iraq area near the Euphrates River. In Numbers chapter 22, verse 5 and 23, verse 7, we find out that Balaam was from the Mesopotamia area in Syria, Aram, etc. He was from the east along the Euphrates River area. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 30, we find out that Solomon's reach of wisdom was noted all the way to the men of the east. In Job chapter 1, verse 3, we find out that Job was from this land in the east and was the wealthiest of all the men of the east. In Ezekiel chapter 25, we read about how the men of the east will come against Israel. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 7, We find out about God's promise, when the Babylonian captivity is over, he would bring them back from the land of the east. Zechariah was prophesying to the returning captives from Babylon, and it is known to be the land of the east. Next, consider the land of these specific people, the Magi. Where does scripture speak of them? Well, we are learning here from these other passages that we're talking about the Babylon-Persia area. We find more information about that and that area and the official administration of that in Daniel's book. Daniel's book is divided for us, so to speak. Historical record is found in the first six chapters. Prophecies and understanding of the prophecies and the visions that Daniel had in the last six chapters. But physically, they were in the land of Babylon, in the land of the east, in the Shinar area, in the Iraq-Iran area, called the land of the east, where the Magi were. There are others in scripture that tell us a bit more about Babylon there. Ezekiel, he was there. He was a contemporary with Daniel. We have Psalm 137, them writing about when they were in Babylon and longing People asking them to sing the songs by the river Chibar. And then we find out that Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, they were part of that. And they were in this Iraq, Iran, Babylon, Persia land during the time or after the time of Daniel. Jeremiah wrote prophecies prior to and during their captivity and even had them delivered to them in one place. Why did these visitors from the east come? Why did they feel compelled to come? Why was it needed that they come? They were from the land of the east. They were from this Babylonian Persian area, but why did they come to worship and pay homage to Israel's new king? the king of the Jews that was born then. Now this is where Daniel becomes significant. Daniel was a captive from Judah to Babylon. He was most likely one of the ones taken in the very first deportation of Nebuchadnezzar, which happened in 603 B.C., I believe, 605 to 603 to 605 B.C., And we find out through history and through the length of time that he served there, that he was there about until 535 B.C. or so. He was there in the captivity approximately 70 to 72 years. So by the time we get to Darius, who was the king when he was thrown into the lion's den, he would have been approximately 85 years old. He was not the little boy thrown into the lion's den. He was an old man. He was about 85 years old or so when he was put into the lion's den under Darius kingship and administration. Daniel served in the king and in the high court as a high official from Nebuchadnezzar, approximately 605 B.C., through Cyrus, and then through the first part of Darius's reign as well. He was the king with that lion's den experience. Daniel's lifespan then, let's assume he was a teenage boy when he was taken. He was a young man. He he and his three Hebrew friends were all taken, most likely in their teen years, somewhere around 15 years old. And they were taken in captivity about 605 or so B.C., all the way through and until approximately 522 to 520. So Daniel probably lived to be nearly 95 or 100 years old and could have been and was an old man when he was put into the lion's den. Notice he was called greatly beloved. In the New Testament, there's one disciple that we know of that was greatly beloved, and we believe that disciple to be John the Apostle who also lived to be nearly a 100 years old. And both of them were given much skill with prophecy and interpretation of prophecy. Understand also that Ezekiel was there approximately 593 to 571 B.C., most likely in the second deportation from Babylon. We also know that Cyrus the Great ruled from 539 to 530 B.C., Darius the Great, approximately 522 to 486 B.C. And then we find out that Xerxes I, who is Esther's king, Ahasuerus, ruled from approximately 486 to 465 B.C. He was the son of Darius. Artaxerxes I would have been the king at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah from approximately 465 to 424 B.C., and he was the son of Xerxes 1. So we see how these various kings fit in with the different scriptural men and women that we have recorded records from, from these captivities and from this time period. The key to understanding why the Magi came, these mysterious visitors from a thousand miles away when Jesus was young in his life is found in Daniel For the sake of time, I'd like to conclude this first lesson here and we will get into why these visitors were compelled to come and what key connection they have to Daniel in the next lesson. And the key is one specific chapter in Daniel's book. And we're going to look at that in detail in lesson number two of our Babylon to Bethlehem thousand mile homage study. I pray that this has been a blessing to you thus far and that you can join us again for the remaining lessons in this Babylon to Bethlehem series. God bless you today in Jesus name. Amen.